0: Facebook applications use maps for showing users where to go. These maps can display businesses, roads, and event locations. Understanding the geographical world is also important for performing Facebook search queries that take into account a user's location. For all of these different purposes, Facebook needs up-to-date, reliable mapping data. OpenStreetMap is an open system for accessing mapping data. Anyone can use OpenStreetMap to add maps to their application. In some ways, it's like a Wikipedia for maps. The data in OpenStreetMap is crowdsourced by users who submit updates to the OpenStreetMap database. Since anyone can submit data to OpenStreetMap, there is a potential for bad data to appear in the system. Just like sometimes you read wrong information on Wikipedia. Facebook uses OpenStreetMap for its mapping data. And this includes important applications where bad data would impact a map user in a meaningfully negative way. In order to avoid this, Facebook builds infrastructure tools to improve the quality of its maps. Saurav Mapatra and Jacob Wasserman work at Facebook on its mapping infrastructure. And they join the show to talk about the tooling that Facebook has built around OpenStreetMap data. If you are selling enterprise software, you want to be able to deliver that software to every kind of customer. Some enterprises are hosted on-prem, some enterprises are on AWS, there might be a different cloud provider they use entirely, and you want to be able to deliver to all of these kinds of enterprises. Gravity is a product for delivering software to any of these kinds of potential environments or data centers that your customers might want to run applications in. You can think of Gravity as something that you use to copy-paste entire production environments across clouds and data centers. It puts a bubble of consistency around your application so that you can write it once and deploy it anywhere. And Gravity is open source, so you can look into the code and understand how it works. Gravity is trusted by leading companies including MuleSoft, Splunk, and Anaconda. You can go to gravitational.com slash se daily to try gravity enterprise free for 60 days that's gravitational.com slash se daily to find out how applications can run the way that your customers expect in their preferred data center that's gravitational.com slash se daily thanks to the team behind gravity the company gravitational for being a sponsor of software engineering daily So Rob and Jacob, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks.
1: Hi, Jeff. Yeah. Hi, Jeff. Thanks. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah. So you, you guys have both worked on a variety of geospatial and mapping problems. Could you give a bit of background on what your experiences are with mapping and geospatial data?
2: Sure. So I joined Facebook close to six years back. And at that point of time, we were starting to roll out our own map stack. So I was one of like the first two or three people on the maps team. And I always remind Jake that I'm the OG mapping team member. (laughs) But what actually happened was we started with basically a slippy maps interface. Because remember, this was 2014, right? Vector maps were very nascent. So we started rolling out our own mapping infrastructure and we used a third party map. But then we realized at that point of time that something like OpenStreetMaps actually is there as a community effort and growing. So in fact, we did a parallel prototype with OpenStreetMaps, and then after two, three years, when we felt that OpenStreetMaps has achieved a critical mass, we actually started projects to switch completely to OSM as our base map, and that's how this team, again, started and sort of focused on basically creating the Facebook base map experience with OSM as the cornerstone of the data. Jake? Jake?
1: Yeah, I'll just give a little bit of my background. I sort of like fell into the whole mapping and geospatial work. I was working at a place called MIT Lincoln Laboratory, and I was there for about nine years or so after college. And a friend of mine was starting this startup where we were building a navigation app that tried to talk to you like your friend was sitting in the car next to you. So instead of giving these instructions, that was like in 200 feet, turn right on Main Street. They could say things like go under the railroad tracks and then turn right at the stop sign. And I was really looking for a change of pace. I decided to join that. And that was in 2012, I guess. And yeah, we built that whole thing out. We launched on the App Store. We were actually acquired by Verizon. I was there for a little bit. And then I found out the Facebook Boston office was doing all this work with mapping and geospatial infrastructure and location. And I was super interested in that and ended up joining the team so i was able to like continue that work so it's been it's been quite an experience and and pretty fun
0: so when i think about geospatial data and mapping data to me it's it's very different than the kinds of data that you store in a typical relational database or a document database or even maybe a graph database how does geospatial data get modeled in a database
2: so it's actually You you're right that there are a lot of nuances in storing and querying geospatial data. In fact, one of my first projects at Facebook was rolling out a geospatial indexing system. Like the way we index normal data, like, you know, which is one-dimensional versus geospatial data that has latitude, longitude is slightly different. And there are nuances and optimizations to be done. So I built, I was one of the first engineers on building something that's basically now a Facebook scale geospatial index And the major thing you have to watch out for is that the same thing that you consider a perceived weakness of geospatial data, which is like it's two-dimensional and spread out, is also a strength because the world isn't random, right? Things occur in a pattern. So geospatial data is actually easier to shard. Like the whole world, if you look at, let's say, streets, right, which are line segments you won't have like an even distribution, like three quarters of the world won't even have streets because it's water. So you have to approach it in a way that there are techniques like arteries, Google is to the Hilbert index, space filling curves. You have to leverage a lot of that and bring it down to a subset of problems, which then traditional databases like the fast joins or distributed joins, MapReduce can then handle.
0: I see. So you have to figure out how to model that geospatial data in a way that basically can work for yes. traditional relational database architectures?
2: Oh, whatever you have. See, look at this. Facebook infrastructure is very good at, let's say, brain scans and joins, right? We can do that at scale. We are very good at graph databases. So when we started this, our original sort of explorations were, okay, we have this multi-dimensional data, but we are very good at like joining two tables on a key like in a distributed environment. So therefore we made investments into like Google, uh, Google S2 inspired Hilbert space filling curves and stuff like that. So what that allowed us to do was to convert what would in effect be a two dimensional range scan down into a linear key where you search within different ranges, which are the Hilbert cell IDs.
0: Mm. And how Does Facebook use mapping and geospatial data in its applications? What are the use cases?
1: Yeah, so there's really like a number of surfaces that you'll see a map on Facebook. So there's a local app, which is a way people find, you know, local stores, restaurants, things like that in their area. There's Marketplace, which is sort of a way, you know, people can sell things. So that has a map application on it. There's business page listings. People have seen Like if you ask for a recommendation for a certain store in your area or, I don't know, like a plumber or something like that, Facebook will actually recognize that and pop up a map. And anyone who answers and says, oh, you can go to this store or that store or, you know, I recommend this kind of person. If they have a Facebook page on it, it will actually like populate a map as people go and add these things to the discussion. There's also like business check-ins. It's kind of like a Foursquare functionality there's ones just to be specific one of the ones people see if, if you're at like an airport and you check in and say where you're going there's this little airport it shows a little airplane line that shows where you're going you know so our team like builds and serves all those all those base maps
0: how accurate does the mapping data within facebook need to be
2: so accuracy is relative to the context so for rendering right depending on your zoom level and there is also a socio-political context to accuracy of things like borders. Like borders are highly contentious in the way that there are disputed areas in the world. So in those areas, what we do is we have, when we ingest the map data or we render it, we actually have policies around like, you know, how to render the borders, which comply with like top line policy of Facebook. For things like place pins and things that are, that we show in the base map, which are mapped to real world places, depending on the use case and sort of you know the privacy compliance issues, the accuracy is different. So what the project that Jake and I started and worked on was about given these set of constraints and top-down directives of accuracy and all of that, can we ensure that we are meeting those milestones?
0: Now, let's think about a few kinds of applications that I could think about. So one is like if I make a search query on Facebook and that query is going to take into account my location, like if I'm searching for restaurants, then maybe the mapping data doesn't need to be perfect. The geospatial data doesn't need to be perfect because you're just you're going to be adding the weight of location into a number of other factors that go into the search. Like, what are my food preferences? What restaurants have I gone to in the past? On the other hand, if you're trying to find where a specific restaurant is on a map, then you would want the location data to be perfect. So do you have, like, different ways of accessing the location data in these two kinds of use cases where you need high accuracy versus lower accuracy?
2: Yeah, you can think of it like images, right? Like there is an absolute high fidelity location that we have, which may or may not map to the real world, but it's continually improving. But that's a very fine-grained location of, let's say, a restaurant, a restaurant pin. For different use cases and all of these things, like, you can now map that pin based on reverse geocoding to, okay, it's in this zip code or this city or it's near this street. And there could be faster systems, as you said, for the coarser use cases, which sort of run off of those things for rapid computation. But when you are actually like, what are the restaurants within 500 meters of me? So now you need to access the high-fidelity data. So this is practically how, it's a trade-off between like how accurate and intensive you want the computations to be versus how quickly you want the result
0: and the way of building a physical map of the world there's a number of approaches you can use none of them are easy i mean obviously you know historically speaking the google approach was literally drive a bunch of cars around and map the physical space i think in tandem with some other approaches like satellite data facebook came around a little bit later and you had access to a slightly wider set of tools, a little longer, a little further out on the technology curve, including OpenStreetMap. Explain what OpenStreetMap is.
2: OpenStreetMap, you can think of it as Wikipedia for maps. It's basically, I know, like it's not quite accurate a description, but it's basically a community-oriented effort to edit and create maps of your of the world, including places you live in. So. What this produces is it's an open interface. You can go to the OpenStreetMap website and you can just start editing the world. All the changes are live. And I will come back to this. This is why the project Jake and I started sort of exists. But what this allows us to do is places that are like the middle of Africa or uh, Southeast Asia. So people can actually map their own community. So the data in those areas Sometimes OSM is the only source for detailed uh, data for let's say like roads in Nigeria or Tanzania because the community is so active and so wonderful, they keep on mapping and improving their own community. In fact, initially, OpenStreetMap actually had volunteers who would be on bikes or hiking trails with GPS, like this little course GPS readers, and just, you know, point by point map out these backwards roads.
1: Just to build on that, I mean, I'd say there's like two things that really set OpenStreetMap apart from any other map database you might find. The first is that, like Saurav was explaining, anybody can go in and just edit the map, you know, just like Wikipedia. So, you know, if you haven't seen OpenStreetMap and you're listening right now, you should absolutely go to OpenStreetMap.org and create an account and like zoom in on your neighborhood or your hometown. And see if there are things that are missing, things that are wrong, and just learn how to edit and fix them. And those things end up in tons and tons of applications and probably ones that you use. And, you know, really the other thing is that anybody can download the data. So, you know, it's not really even just like the map display and how it looks. It's actually the raw data that comprises the map, like the real longitude and latitude positions of all the roads or all the buildings or trees or anything else that you find in the database. And then people can build, you know, really any application you want on that. And that's really what's made it just really wildly powerful and a huge competitor in the geospatial market.
0: Tell me more about how the crowdsourcing of the OpenStreetMap data works. Yeah,
1: it's very much ground up and really community driven. There's no real overarching sort of organization that's saying this is the type of thing we want. It's whatever any individual is interested in at the times. So there are a lot of these little communities and people that have their own interests and things they're interested in mapping. So you'll find tons of people who you know are really into hiking or really into mountain biking. And like sort of said, they attach GPS devices to their bikes or to their packs and they go out and they bike around they go on hikes and they come back and they can upload those traces to OpenStreetMap, and then find out what's been missing what's there what's wrong and adjust it and fix it and add names and change you know is this road paved or not and put in whatever you know whatever kinds of things they're interested in and there's a lot of these almost like groups that are interested in certain types of data that you know really focus on things going on that they're really interested in and there's also just people who are like really interested in just their neighborhood and their town and making sure it's perfectly and accurately mapped. Like every business that opens or closes, they make sure that OpenStreetMap is is really up to date or there's any construction project and a new house appears. They are just on top of it and mapping it or any road change. You know, people are just there's really a wide variety of interests there. And it's very much just bottom up driven.
2: My favorite is people who are power line enthusiasts. So you will find like this transmission power lines very carefully mapped out with kilovolt ratings and like, you know, SAG and sort of tower placement. I mean, I love that you can actually go and do that if you're interested in it. Yeah. people yeah, there's map another benches. Group
1: of, <laughs> yeah, I think there's, there's another great group of like railroad enthusiasts and people who are just obsessed with, railroad infrastructure and they love its history and like not just where train tracks are now but where they've been and you can find just these amazing maps of of old train lines that are now paved over and you can find them and like I just saw one near my house the other day and there's like this supermarket that has this weird hill and there's an auto body shop with this very weird shaped like parking lot and it always stood out to me as this odd thing. And I saw, it was literally like a month and a half ago on OSM, This actual train line used to go through there. I had no idea. And this hill was there to support the train. And it was like on this curve. And that's why that parking lot goes like, the train used to go right down the middle of what's now the parking lot. I mean, it's really amazing. And, you know, there's just these groups of people that have coalesced on OpenStreetMap as the place to like put and store and maintain this data. It's, it's really amazing.
2: I mean, there is, mapping has its own Maslow pyramid, right? Like, you have areas of the world which are not mapped at all, like southeastern Asia, middle of Sub-Saharan Africa. So there it's more about like, you know, getting a map. But if you come to like Europe or North America, at least coastal North America, a lot of it has been mapped, there is data available. But what OpenStreetMap allows people to do, as Jake said, is to add different layers, like move up the Maslow pyramid towards like, you know, self-actualization. But so this is what is so wonderful about OpenStreetMap. It allows like the whole world to have a map and then refine and update that map as time goes along.
0: If you listen to this show, you are probably a software engineer or a data scientist. If you want to develop skills to build machine learning models, check out Springboard, Springboard is an online education program that gives you hands-on experience with creating and deploying machine learning models into production, and every student who goes through Springboard is paired with a mentor, a machine learning expert who gives that student one-on-one mentorship support over video. The Springboard program offers a job guarantee in its career tracks, meaning that you do not have to pay until you secure a job in machine learning. If you're curious about transitioning into machine learning, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash springboard. Listeners can get five hundred dollars in scholarship if they use the code AI Springboard. This scholarship is for twenty students who enroll by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash springboard and enter the code AI springboard. It takes about ten minutes to apply. It's free, and it's awarded on a first-come, 1st serve basis. So if you're interested in transitioning into machine learning, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash springboard. Anyone who is interested and likes the idea of building and deploying machine learning models, deep learning models, you might like Springboard. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash springboard. And thank you to Springboard for being a sponsor. You've talked about all these different things that are represented in OpenStreetMap, railroads and businesses and benches and roads and sidewalks. How does this data get laid out or schematized? What is the OpenStreetMap schema?
2: Yeah. So OpenStreetMap is designed as an interchange format. It's like they have their own database schema which is open in a PostgreSQL database in the OpenStreetMap sort of organization. But when the data is given out, it's dumped out in a format called the planet file. What the planet file is, so OpenStreetMap uses three basic sort of core data structures to represent the world. The first one is a point, it's called a node. So it has a lat long, a latitude and longitude, and a series of tags. So tags are something we'll come back to again and again in OpenStreetMap. These are basically freeform string key value pairs where you can say like, you know, this is a node, you know, you can say it's a restaurant like place type restaurant, then you can say amenity bathroom, yes. So that's a node that represents a single point. The next data structure that they have is called a way. A way represents an ordered list of points. So it can be anything from lines, polygons, and most of the features that we care about in OpenStreetMap are ways. And then there is this thing called relations which allows you to map sort of, it basically think of it as a graph edge, right? It allows you to create an association between two different types of OpenStreetMap individual like a ways and nodes. So for example, you have a polygon with a hole in it, right? Like it's a building, but it has like an enclave inside. So you can basically have two ways, one for the outer polygon and one for the inner polygon. And you can say that, these two are actually related in the way that they are a multi-polygon and the inner one is a whole. So that can go on the relation. So this is how OpenStreetMap data is laid out, which is great for interchange, because all you can do have to do is read these three lists. But when you start doing stuff with it, this is not really a transactional schema.
0: Indeed. So OpenStreetMap itself uses Postgres under the hood. And... I think we can start to get into your own usage of OpenStreetMap data. So as I understand your consumption of OpenStreetMap data, you consume that interchange format. So OpenStreetMap, you know, anybody can export the data that is sitting in that planet file format and can consume it and then you can import it and do whatever you want with that high-level representation. So when you're ingesting that planet file format, what are you doing to put it into your own database schema? What, like What's your underlying database?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So most of Facebook's database in terms of the data warehouse that we use is built on Presto. I know you had an episode about Presto, I think like a couple months ago or so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we take that planet file and we populate it in a way that we can upload to what we call our Hive data store. And basically, we use a schema that's pretty similar to one that people would put into Postgres, but is in the Presto data format, and that's just available for anybody to query. And from there, we actually you know, have a whole map data pipeline that can take that data filter it based on things cartographers are interested in, slice it up and dice it in ways that optimize it for serving, you know, maps out to consumers and those go into a variety of different indexing services and CDNs and things like that. So that way we can actually like deliver these things optimally.
0: That's kind of interesting. So you don't actually keep it in a database in like, well, at least on disk in a database, you put, you just put it in that planet file format you index it somehow in your Hive metadata store, and then Presto interfaces with the Hive metadata store and Presto uses its magical memory optimization stuff to pull it into memory and perform operations on it, right? Like you're just doing all these operations in memory.
2: Yeah, because a lot of our workflows of what we do with OpenStreetMap are kind of batch workflows, right? You ingest the data, then like, you know, we'll talk later about ingestion and integrity things. So all of these need to run on a massive amount of data and that's what Presto buys us, is the scale. Because this is not transactional, like we're not changing it, we are just consuming it. So we take it and as Jake said, we put it into a data warehouse and then there are like this series of pipelines that run on it to create different intermediate and the final sort of data structures out of it.
0: And this is actually what leads to This interesting set of problems that you had to figure out solutions to. So, you know, Facebook wants to use OpenStreetMap because it's this amazing open data set of mapping information. But the way that you consume it is this batch ingest, this batch pulling it into all your different services, kind of these batch ETL like pipelines. And that's, you know, has all of the issues of batch processing. And in addition, there's the issue of correctness, where when you pull this data into the Facebook infrastructure, there are certain instances where OpenStreetMap might have been tampered with or updated recently in a way that is not so good. So, like, you know, <laughs> when I used to write, you know, reports in high school, and I would use Wikipedia, you know, sometimes you, you know, you go to the the Wikipedia page on animals, and, you know, it lists, like, tofu as an animal because somebody, <laughs> you know, vandalized the page recently and said that tofu was an animal. And, you know, me being in high school not knowing any better, I might write an entire paper on, on. <laughs> You know the taxonomy of tofu. of the tofu species, <laughs> so, but that's not really a problem. You know, maybe I get a bad grade, but it can be much worse in the case of OpenStreetMap if somebody edits something and says there's a road, you know, leading from Village A to Village B, and actually the road leads off a cliff. That's really bad.
2: Yeah, and Jeff, you know, my favorite example when Jake and I were initially looking at this sort of OpenStreetMap change corpus to see like what kind of bad changes are there. Jake, you remember those lakes inside the malls? Oh so, my god! <laughs> so people figured out that a certain game about on-the-go capturing these animals that can evolve, like Pokemon Go. So Pokemon Go seemed to use land use at some point of time from OpenStreetMap. So these teenagers would go around change, creating like <laughs> fake lakes so that water-type Pokemon would spawn in their building complex. They wanted to catch Quartel basically. <laughs> <laughs> we used to find like these weird sorts of land use inside like buildings, malls, schools.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and to build on that, I mean a more serious example. There was kind of a, a very somewhat famous vandalism moment in OpenStreetMap a few years ago, where somebody was able to change the name of New York City to what amounted to an ethnic slur, oh, God. and yeah. this slipped through the radar of some integrity checks. And some companies ended up displaying that on their map to their users, and you know you saw this on Twitter. People are like, "Oh, uh, why is I think like the City Bike app or something showing New York City labeled as you know dot dot dot?" And it made it on like TechCrunch. It was on the cover. I th- I think like even the New York uh, Times not picked Facebook this up. Though. It was not on Facebook, but you know it was sort of like this almost like watershed moment I think for a lot of you know people I mean, using OpenStreetMap. They Map. fixed
2: it they fixed it very yep. quickly but yep. the screenshots live on forever right like the yep. screenshots right the internet right. has a memory with screenshots right.
1: so it got fixed in OpenStreetMap really quickly but then it ended up just being delivered out to you know all these apps and then their consumer users for you know for i think a few hours and you know it's kind of a moment that i think a lot of companies said all right we need to do something more serious about this kind of potential vandalism because it's more serious than you know a lake in somebody's apartment complex
0: Right. So in taking this data that may be tampered with, and I mean, the problem is it's the size of the planet. So there's a lot of judgment to make if you want to verify that the entire planet has not been tampered with on every batch ingest. That's so much data. Now that said, you do have a well-formed Set of changes that have been made to OpenStreetMap in each time you ingest it. So, like, let's say you've got your local copy of OpenStreetMap that you ingested yesterday, and today you're ingesting it again. You're going to be able to look at a well defined change set. How have the crowdsourcing people made updates to the public version of OpenStreetMap? You can decide which of those changes to actually apply. To your own local version.
2: Jeff, it's not that simple. And we can talk about it. Yeah, tell me more. Yeah. So the changes, if you look at the way people submit changes to OpenStreetMap, like they will submit changes, like somebody will say that okay, I'm gonna fix all the labels on high schools in a district, right? So the changes will be spread across like a district's surface area. Somebody will say, like, you know, let me go and fix national park tags. So they will, like, one day they will attempt all Western United States national parks. So these changes are all over the place. So, and sometimes the changes mix and match different kinds of changes. So if you are consuming in, as you said, as a batch, so you basically end up with the changes that are in a bunch of these change sets, and the same feature might have been changed twice or thrice, right? So what you're gonna have is that notion of a chain set is very good for curating it into the crowdsourcing sort of catalog. But when you're ingesting it, you basically have to deal with the individual changes. And what we did was Jake, me and Kevin Ventulo, we created an algorithm, which basically took these changes and reclustered them. So we sort of created these logical chain sets out of the net change that happened between two snapshots. So if you think of it, OpenStreetMap is a fire hose, right, like it's changes are coming in in bunches of chainsets submitted by people, which consists of individual changes. So when you take the difference between two snapshots, you can think of it as basically a combination of all individual atomic effective changes. So let's say somebody changed the name of a place from A to B to C, we just see it as a change from A to C. So. We take these atomic changes, which is basically a diff algorithm, and then take these and cluster them to see that how many of these changes are interlocked so that all of them have to be reviewed together. Like if you have a T-junction, like a stop sign and a T-junction, and somebody moved the point inside, so now the junction point, now the three road segments that connect and the junction point are interlocked right? You cannot just change, move the point, then you'll have two roads hanging off of nowhere. You have to either accept or reject all four of them. So that's the foundation of how we approach the batch ingestion at scale. So
0: this batch ingestion process, it presents a trade-off between freshness and correctness. And you've given a little bit of context as to why that is. Describe that trade-off between freshness and correctness in more detail.
1: Sure, yeah. So it's really just like you said. So people are editing OpenStreetMap constantly. They publish, OpenStreetMap publishes minutely, essentially, database replication logs. So, you know, new roads really are being created all the time. People are adding buildings and things like that, updating business listings all the time. But if we want to stay fresh, we essentially have to ingest all that stuff as it comes in, say, every day or even every minute, right? But if we want to take the time to slow down and say, find the things like Sorov is talking about or find when there are cases that there might be vandalism and we can't accept some of those changes, you know, we sort of introduce this delay, right? And so it's really hard to stay up to date while also being able to evaluate all these changes and say, are these things correct in some way? And so what we've done through the system that Sorov was talking about is a way in which we can sort of pull in the data that we feel is correct and that stuff can stay up to date and fresh. And the pieces of the data where we're maybe not sure or maybe look like they're vandalism, we can hold those parts back and find all the other changes that are interconnected or interlocked, as Serv was saying, and hold those pieces back while keeping you know, the rest of the map sort of fresh in that way.
2: And the key here is to keep on doing it again and again. So there are some interesting mathematical properties that come out of our clustering algorithm. So each changed feature, because we are taking a net diff, each feature is in one logical change set. And a logical change set is a all or nothing. Like either the whole thing needs to be approved or the whole thing needs to be rejected. So one bad feature or one sort of, wrong thing in it. You need to reject the whole thing. But the good thing is, because these are sort of like idempotent, commutative, and independent uh, logical chain sets, you can pick that up again. It'll again show up next time you run a diff. And maybe if the beautiful thing here is that, as you said in your Wikipedia example, somebody might come and fix it later. So if by the time you do it again and somebody has fixed it, the net diff won't show it, right? So it'll get auto-ingested. So that's the beauty of, I mean, we the, theoretically it is a batch consumption, but it's more like micro-batching. What we are talking about is we are trying to do this on a faster and faster and a regular cadence so that the net diff is small and then our sort of the machine augmented review and user review together can capture and cover a lot of these changes.
0: All right. So how often is this batch ingest taking place? Right
1: now, we essentially, we evaluate it every day. But yeah, our process runs sort of weekly, like the full process that Saurav was talking about, where we take in a whole new data set, we take what is the change between the last one and the current one, and we compute these logical chain sets, and we we have a bunch of ways I know we'll get into later about automatically accepting some of them, and some of them go to manual review. And that happens essentially on a weekly cadence. So, every week we can publish out what is the latest map that we feel comfortable with that has a lot of data over the past week and maybe keeps out some changes that we still want time to evaluate.
2: I mean, you can think of this as a CI CD for map data, right? Continuous uh, ingestion, continuous deployment. So, what this process has allowed us to do is decouple this process from like this linear thing of ingest, verify, deploy to OpenStreetMap moves as a parallel stream and this sort of batch ingestion keeps on calculating the diffs, then reviews can happen separately and you can ship any sort of approved snapshot out of it. So it brings that discipline which has been there in like source code control world for a long time. In fact, our sort of the logical change set algorithm and all of these are highly inspired by things like cherry picking changes when merging between two source codes. We put some restrictions on it in the way that the only place changes can be written to is upstream OSM. So that means we are an immutable subset of the things that are in OSM. We have just kept the bad stuff out. So that this helps us avoid like the diamond problem, right? Two forks and then you have to rebase them.
0: Very cool. So on each of these ingestion processes, there are some changes to the map that you're going to want to flag as maybe we shouldn't apply this change immediately. Maybe we should wait another couple days, see if somebody fixes it, or maybe we should put it through our own review process. And I think that these kinds of changes that you identified, they're called suspicious change sets. Is that right? Yeah. So
1: yeah, we have a number of ways of looking at a variety of changes, right? So we actually leverage like some of Facebook's profanity detection tools and say, does this name look bad? Or is this maybe matching some bad word, but you know, for example, Massachusetts contains you know, the second, third, and fourth letters there are technically a curse word, right? So something like that can get flagged, and those things can be held back that somebody should review and say, does that look like a real name, or is this possibly like a curse word? What our process does is if a reviewer actually does find something that looks wrong in some way or is vandalism, what they can do is actually just go into the main OpenStreetMap database, make that fix. And then the next time we do our ingestion process, we can make sure that we pull their fix in so that way our map maintains that level of correctness and we're never actually like pulling in these types of changes.
2: An interesting thing to note here is that these usual suspects like the word ASS in Massachusetts or the city called F-U-C-K in Austria, this always reminds me of that XKCD cartoon about the guy who thinks he'll have his plate as like 1I0O and the cops would always get confused, but then they have his number on like a little sticky note. So (laughs) these sort of the usual suspects, we have factored them into the kind of the process itself so that if this is a recurring pattern and it has been whitelisted, it will just go through.
0: Okay, so let's talk about what actually happens when you've surfaced these changes that you are not sure if you should apply to your local open street map. So, you know, because you suspect some profanity, or you suspect that somebody is updating OpenStreetMap to put lakes in the middle of shopping malls to spawn Pokemon, whatever the, the reason, you decide that you have flagged these things as suspicious. What can you do? What are the options once you have identified these things as suspicious?
2: Yeah, again, remember that we treat OSM upstream as a writable copy, right? So what we do is that we open tickets for mappers and basically surface it to editors who can go and make that change so that as Jake said, next day the cycle runs, it'll pick up the changes. But some of these, one of the biggest sort of philosophical hills we had to climb was when we started this project, a lot of our validators, like the human reviewers, they came from an editing world. So editing is about quality. It's about making the best change you can. But ingestion is like a shovel, right? It's not a scalpel. It's about, is this thing bad enough to keep out? So basically teaching our sort of the human reviewers that you are not doing quality control at the upper end, but you're you basically keeping the bad stuff out. So sometimes like details in geometry is one thing. It's like editors are used to creating the fine grained detail of a road curving. But if there was no road and somebody has created a road which is like with four points, which is kind of jagged, is that something we should pass or fail? So these kind of things were more important in the initial phases of the project is just teaching people the philosophy that when you're ingesting, it's about volume and keeping the egregiously bad stuff out. So it was like over time since we have been doing this for close to a year, year and a half now, the mapping team and the engineering team and the tools are now in sync so that we feel that this is now a smooth cycle where if the machine augmented review flags a suspicious feature, we have a human look at it. And then if the validator feels that this should be edited, they just open a ticket using Naprolet, which is one of the things that you use to create OpenStreetMap tasks and they basically surface out and somebody goes and fixes it. And if nobody fixes it, next time you run, it'll again get flagged and not get into the map.
0: When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native. They know their stuff, and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works, they can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack, and you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com g2i to learn more about g2i. Thank you to g2i for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So, if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily dot com slash g two I. Okay, so there is both automated review and human review in the process of determining which of these location changes you want to actually apply to your local copy. Could you go a little bit deeper into both the automated review process and the human review process?
2: Sure. I can cover the automated review and Jake can cover the manual review part. Sure. So if you look at it, you know, the Sun Tzu thing, which is, I think it's either Sun Tzu or Klauswitz who said the map is the terrain is the map. <laughs> so it's basically, there is so much nuance in what is the correct representation of the world. Is we can build things that can catch like the gotcha ones, like, you know, obviously lake inside a building. We can say that that's not the case till it is. But there are nuances like approved place names, as I said, borders or other sort of things like whether something is the name changes, like, you know, sometimes schools are renamed, districts are renamed or roads. Suddenly you, there was a two-lane road, somebody did a construction have a, has now a four-lane road. These kind of things actually require humans. So, our philosophy has always been that we cannot have, obviously, it will be ideal to have a fully human pipeline, but somebody did some computations and the economics of that is mind boggling, like, you know, because of the firewalls of changes that OpenStreetMap is. So, what we decided was when we analyzed all the changes on the machine review part, we realized there is a lot of changes that a human doesn't need to look at. You don't really need the nuanced sort of effort-heavy, time-heavy take that a human brings on these sort of basically gimme changes. So that's what the automated review takes care of. But the human changes are actually the way the humans decide what changes should go in or not. There are some changes that, you, as of now, we haven't found a very reliable way of doing with machines, and Jake can actually cover that.
1: Yeah, sure. So like i sort of mentioned, all these changes get grouped up together into what we call logical change sets. And it goes through this automated review process where it can look at things like, you know, does this make sense given satellite imagery data? Does this have some words in it that maybe I should have somebody look at? And anything that it's not sure about or that it doesn't know how to handle goes into this manual review bucket. And what we've done is we've built like a specialized UI that exists internally where mappers can look at these changes and what happened. And they can do it at sort of a high level, like how does this thing actually influence the map? Is it part of some polygon that now doesn't render? Does it move a lake somewhere? Or, you know, does it look like maybe somebody was just taking the accuracy of some road and like really making it nice and smooth or something like that? And so our mappers who are very familiar with OpenStreetMap and this process can go in and sort of inspect like, all right, what actually happened here? What are the nodes or the relations or the ways that changed here? What are the tags that changed? Does that make sense? And it's a very simple for them. It's a binary decision. Either accept it or reject it. And if they reject it, they can say, hey, this is flagged. This needs to change on OpenStreetMap they can say well i'm not really sure about it and so they look at those things and then all the ones that they accept at the end of the day we can take all those changes and essentially apply them on the map while leaving the old ones behind and knowing that you know we haven't really broken the map in any way because we have this logical change set framework
0: all right so these collections of changes that you detect on each of the ingest processes when you're grouping these together and you're turning them into collections like the the loche collections is it kind of like when i go into a code review tool and there's a diff and it the tooling makes it easy for me to sequentially go through the different sections of the diff like if i'm a human reviewer and i'm reviewing the location changes is it sort of like you know interfacing with code changes on github
2: Yeah, it's a visual diff tool, like the tool that Jake talked about. It basically shows you two versions of the map, one without the changes, one with the changes, with the changes highlighted. Okay. So that's like the first line of check. It's Think of it as like a diff view UI, right? And as you said, on GitHub or anywhere else you go, it shows you this line was removed, this line was added, these lines were edited. So now you can, even though the entirety of the change set might cover a long, big area, you now know which ones to focus on. And remember, the machine-augmented review has run before this. So what it does is it highlights only the pieces that we feel that a human should look at.
0: Okay, And, and that actually is applied after the automated review process, right? So you get these collections of changes, and then there's some stage in the pipeline where there is automated review. And this is like you've trained models to be able to review some of these changes, right?
2: Yeah, it's a mixture of heuristics, AIML, some computer vision stuff in there. It's a rule engine. It basically has a series of rules, right? So the rules run one by one on the individual feature changes and classify them, give them a confidence of how confident are we that this change should be accepted. And then we have some post-processing, which basically says if a logical change set has all features auto-approved, then it will basically, it's good to go. If there is one feature that's flagged as reject this feature, then that logical chain set just goes down. Then that leaves us with a bunch of logical chain sets of which, let's say, 90%, 95% have been approved, but only 5% of the features need to be looked at. So these are the ones we surface to the manual review.
0: So that automated review, the rules engine, how did you build that? Like, what are the, you know, obviously you can do things like scan for certain words that people might be adding like profanity that's that's pretty straightforward but what were the learnings that went into creating the rule engine for this automated review process
2: We didn't build it straight up we actually observed our like the manual reviewers and the validators and we basically we took notes on how much time they spend on something before being confident about it Like say, for example, geometry detailing was very easy to spot by eye. Like a road had three points and somebody added like a smooth curve. But if you look at it from a numeric standpoint, it might have added like 200 vertices. But we then went back and tried to capture this sort of domain knowledge into rules. And the geometry detailing, we decided that we can do basically a curve similarity and like you know, simple jacquard similarity between bounding boxes, centroid movement. So by some way we sort of cheaply mimic the way humans make quick decisions. We already have a project that basically generates roads out of satellite imagery, like in places like Thailand, Asia, Africa. So we basically repurpose the models from that project using neural networks and we repurpose those networks to do the inverse. If somebody has created a road, We go to the satellite photo and check, does this road roughly correspond visually to something that's on the ground and that looks like a road? There are like OCR-based checks is people actually try to write letters using roads. So we check if something looks like... I mean, there is a picture of... What was it? There was a picture of Lenin somewhere in the middle of America. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: So these type of things we use OCR. There is a lot of NLP that's used for the profanity and all of that stuff. Plus, the inverse is also true, is that if you look at something like, there are regularizations and normalizations that people do, like AVE gets expanded into Avenue, ST gets expanded into Street, so these sort of changes is what the machine augmented review takes off the plate for the humans. This is just there is a standard opex of time like a setup and a review time even if it's a no brainer change. So this is what we try to shave off of the entire sort of pipeline.
1: Yeah, I was I was going to add it was you know very much an iterative process where we are finding types of things that mappers were reviewing and putting them in buckets and then trying to say what are You know, what is the low hanging fruit of something we can just automate? Yeah. And, you know, it took a long time to really find these rules, generate these categories, and then ultimately, like, build some automated system around them.
2: No, I would like to give a shout out to our sort of the manual review validation lead, Sharmin. And we used to joke that Sharmin is very good at, like, you know, she'll look at a UI and say, oh, this goes, this doesn't go. So I was joking to Jake that Locha should stand for linearly optimized Sharmin as a service. (laughs)
0: And the pattern of like, starting with the human review process and basically studying what took the humans longer to review, perhaps as a way of assessing, these are the things, if I understand correctly, these are the things that we should serve to a human. If the human is very fast at reviewing it, that probably means you can very easily define some rule that the human is seeing in each of these cases where the human, you know, you start by just kicking all of these change sets to the human. The human can review some subset of them very quickly, some subset of them fairly slowly. The ones they can review more quickly, you can easily define a rule around that and put that into your rules engine that's going to be in the automated review process. Am I understanding that correctly?
2: Yes, you got it. Yeah. So the enemy is time, right? Like, you know, what you're optimizing for is, as you said, freshness and correctness. Freshness is a time bound thing, and correctness is basically an accuracy metric. So, what we are trying to do is bring down the baseline atomic time required to review a change, down to the fact that only if we feel that a machine cannot make a nuanced decision here, it should go to a human. So, let's not waste the manual reviewers' time. That's pretty much all. We are looking for.
0: This is a pattern in defining automated review systems. And, you know, I mean, these kinds of automated review versus human review systems are proliferate these days when you have all this user generated content and, you know, you have these machine learning based like feed generation algorithms. I'm sure like Facebook has a lot of these kinds of systems built internally. What kinds of broad lessons have you learned about how to build these kinds of human review systems that are being used to kind of bootstrap the automated review systems?
2: I mean, I can't speak to the other efforts that are there. Obviously, those teams, hopefully you'll get to do calls with them. For the map data, since we are actually editing public data, we are actually validating public data it is very important for us as jake pointed out with the very well publicized case of new york city changing to a racial slur i mean our manager kevin he basically used to joke that we have a metrics of sevs averted like how many severe events have we averted it's again i come back to sunzu which says the greatest generals are unknown for the never had to fight wars mm-hmm. so we <laughs> a lot of this goes down to the fact that we stop bad things from getting in. So that means our metrics, and at the same time, we want to consume a lot of the map changes that are coming down the line. So it's always a tightrope walk between basically a high recall rejection versus a high precision accept. Like when we are in doubt about something, we should stop it. But if that doubt is below a threshold, it's probably good to go unless it hits some other like threat markers. So that's the lesson we learned is it's always going to be dials. The work is never done because it's also an arms race, right? We have always been public about how we validate the data and all of that. And the lay of the land will change. The kind of vandalism and bad edits that will come in will change. So our system has to adapt to this. So this, as Jake said, is a constantly iterative process. And this is where the nuance of the manual review plays a lot is we learn from them like you when know, we look at them looking at changes the flag rejects and sort of changes that took them a long time and we then go back to it and see how we can map this what part of this can be automated and what part of it has to be a human review all
0: right well we're nearing the end of our time but i just want to pull back and get a little bit of a perspective on what you guys are working on today and the difficult problems that you've been encountering more recently so what are the Prime focuses right now of trying to create this accurate map of the world?
2: So if you look at how the larger team we roll into, which we call world.ai, we have this website called Mapping with AI, where we give tools for people to edit and leverage machine learning generated data. It's organized into three parts, read, write, and display. So the read part is what we are talking mostly about today, which is uh, ingestion and integrity and making sure that the changes are good and that we produce something that can be worked on. The right team works on producing tools like our Rapid UI, which actually is built on the open source ID and allows you to use this machine learning predictions for roads and buildings into like sort of onion skinning them onto the UI so that you can quickly map places and validate them. And the third part is display, which is basically our own, which displays the Facebook map. And in all three of these, the problem is evolving. If you look at the number of changes that go in daily, I have seen that basically ramp up over the last two, three years they have been looking at it, is that OSM is going mainstream, which means there is a lot more data, which means there is a lot more variance and volume in the kind of bad things that we have to keep out. So as I said before, this is a moving target. The goalpost is on a treadmill or rather a conveyor belt. So we have to like, you know, Wayne Gretzky our way to how this thing can be, like, you know, shoot for where, the what the bad changes will be. And that's where a lot of our time goes in. And the other part that we spend a lot of time in improving is if you look at the split between what goes for manual review and human review, there is a big part about semantics which we have been playing with uh, approaches like, can we create vector embeddings of the kind of changes people do? Apply like financial risk modeling sort of approaches to evaluating like how risky a change is. So this work is already going on.
0: Okay, guys. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you.
2: Jeff, before we go, one thing I would like to call out is Facebook's use of OpenStreetMap is not limited to our products. The organization, larger organization we are part of, also has an effort called Data for Good. So where we make a lot of visualizations and data that some of them derive from OpenStreetMap, some of them from other data sets, available for public download. And you can just search for it and take a look at what that is.
0: Very cool. And yeah, uh, that tool for human review, that's open source, right?
2: No, the tool for human review, because it is tied so deeply into the Facebook data systems and all of that, it's not open source. The tool for editing the map, which is Rapid, is open source. Oh, right, OK, yes. Uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah, OK, so I've seen some screenshots of Rapid. That's a pretty cool product tool. Well, thank you guys. Thanks both for coming on. All right, bye, Jeff. Yeah, thank you very much. This was fun. As a company grows, the software infrastructure becomes a large, complex, distributed system. Without standardized applications or security policies, it can become difficult to oversee all the vulnerabilities that might exist across all of your physical machines, virtual machines, containers, and cloud services. ExtraHop is a cloud-native security company that detects threats across your hybrid infrastructure. ExtraHop has vulnerability detection running up and down your networking stack, from L2 to L7, and it helps you spot, investigate, and respond to anomalous behavior using more than 100 machine learning models. At extrahop.com cloud, you can learn about how ExtraHop delivers cloud-native network detection and response. ExtraHop will help you find misconfigurations and blind spots in your infrastructure and stay in compliance. Understand your identity and access management payloads to look for credential harvesting and brute force attacks, and automate the security settings of your cloud provider integrations. Visit extrahop.com cloud to find out how ExtraHop can help you secure your enterprise. Thank you to ExtraHop for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and if you want to check out ExtraHop and support the show, Go to extrahop.com slash cloud.